Bethel Church family, after a month in our family series, we are heading back upstairs, I suppose, if you will, to the upper room. The upper room has been a series we started last year in John's chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. We'll get to 17 here by the time it's all over, looking at a poignant moment in the ministry of Jesus. The things he says, what he does as he's gathered with his disciples for one last meal in his life, gathered in the second story room of Passover week on Thursday night. This was the night before Jesus died. To the conversation of drama. If you remember, Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. He'd introduced new meaning to the Passover, the bread and the cup. And one of the 12 who were closest to Jesus, Judas, had been revealed to be someone who was going to betray Judas. And at this point in the evening, Judas has left to go sell Jesus out to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus had just said in John 13, little children, little children, yet a little while, yet I am with you. Jesus was going away. He was going to be glorified. He was going to die. But then he reassured his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm preparing your way to dwell with God in heaven. I'm sending a helper to be with you, to dwell in you forever. That's where we find ourselves today. Would you join me in John chapter 15? We'll be in verses 1 and following. John chapter 15, verse 1. This passage is an incredible truth, and I'm thrilled we get to get back into it this morning together. Let's read Before we begin, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's all we'll have time for today, though the metaphor continues. We'll get to that next week. What's happening here? Jesus is giving us an extended metaphor. It's his seventh and final I am statement. I am. He was revealing bit by bit pictures of who he was. He had already said, I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says, I am the true vine. If you're curious, I'm doing something I don't usually do today. I'm I'm going traditional on my overarching outline. Maybe this helps some of you. 
we're going to see four things in the structure here, and they're alliterated. So, you know, it's a gift to my fellow English grammar nerds in the room. Um, Character, clarification, call, and consequences. All right, so that's the skeleton that this is all going to hang on. Well, there's a lot there. The characters in this extended metaphor first, of course, include a vine who is Jesus. Who's in this story? A vine who is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus is asserting, hey, I am the genuine vine, the successful vine, an artery through which probably a grape is the plant in mind here, a grape tree, a grape vine is established, the way and vehicle through which fruit can grow. I mean, vines were common, still are common in Israel. The climate, the agriculture, it all works together to create a great place for vineyards. And so vines were common, even wild vines throughout the land of Israel. You remember stories of grapes playing a reoccurring role in this promised land that the Israelites rolled into. If Jesus were to roll into northwest Indiana... He probably wouldn't have picked vines, although the further up the Lake Michigan coast you get, the closer we can understand. Maybe he would have said, I am an oak tree. You are the branches. Or, or I am a corn stalk. You are the ears. <laughs> he probably had a better picture in mind, right? Although where we live, it would have been apple tree. I'm the trunk, and you are the branches there, right? So... He's using a common plant, and it's more than just a common plant that everyone in his audience happened to understand intimately. That was true, but really, vines had an ancient, grapevines specifically had this ancient presence in God's story of his people. Just uh, one example, in Psalm 80, the psalmist wrote, speaking of the nation of Israel, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it there in the promised land. God was talking about Israel already back in history as if they were uh, a vine. That he was moving from Egypt and planting in this promised land. And then through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, I'll just hit the end of a beautiful image. God says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's the nation of Israel that's the vine here. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting." And he looked for justice. Here's the fruit he's hoping for. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Earlier he said, I looked for fruit, but you produced wild grapes. As a nation, this people had been what God hoped would be his vineyard. But they had not produced the fruit of righteousness and justice he was looking for. They had failed. So Jesus comes along then into that kind of cultural moment and says, I am the true vine. As the true vine, Jesus reveals himself to be the focus of God's plan of salvation. It's no longer belonging to a nation, a vineyard of Israel, or following these temple practices by which you were going to declare your membership in God's family, by which you could be made a part of. God's family right with him. No, it's through the vine of Jesus. Membership came through Jesus. Being in union with Jesus, being in Jesus, the true vine. So that's the first character. The vine, 
Jesus. The second character in this metaphor is a vine dresser. God the Father. He says, my father is the vine dresser. Now, admittedly, we don't, we don't use the word vine dresser very often. How many of you ever used that word, right? But we do use words that are similar all the time. Farmer and gardener, someone who's taking care of the soil, of the plants, helping them grow. And like a farmer, God the Father has a goal of maximizing the grapes, the output of this plant. If we skip ahead to verse 8, which is cheating because we're going to talk about it next week, but bear with me. He says, by this my father, this vine dresser, this farmer is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God has a goal in mind for this plant as the farmer. But there's a third character, and maybe even a a fourth, branches. Branches are mentioned here in verse 5. I'm the vine, Jesus says, he reiterates that, but you are the branches. You, immediate context, remember he's in the upper room talking to his disciples, but we can extend that out. Any genuine Christian, that's who the branches are. Genuine Christians. And we'll talk more about why that clarification in a second. Those are the characters in this metaphor. There's a clarification Jesus makes, though, right in the middle that seems like it's a little out of place. In verse 3, what's he say? He says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What is this clean and what is this word Jesus is talking about? What is he trying to clarify in the middle of this metaphor? Remember, he's talking in this upper room with his disciples. Judas has already left to betray him. And Jesus is circling back to something he had said to them just earlier in this same room. He had called them clean as they were getting ready to share the meal, as he was washing their feet. Do you remember that exchange? Peter had been offended because Jesus had moved over to wash his feet. And Peter says, no way, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, here's the deal. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And so Peter, passionate, goes, okay, then give me a bath. Wash all of me. And Jesus is like, whoa, bro. He says in, in John 13, 10, he said, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. But some review here perhaps from a few months ago. This foot washing moment, it had been a picture primarily in a gospel-oriented, theology-oriented direction of the agency through which Jesus was going to provide salvation, our redemption. It was a model of servant-heartedness, yes, but it was also a picture of the agency of our redemption, that it's Jesus who does the washing, that Jesus alone can make people clean. That's a little reminder Jesus is throwing into the midst of this. Remember that conversation we just had? You're clean, and, and it's me, Jesus alone, who can make you Clean, it's my life, it's my blood, it's my cross. That's the only way to be clean. I'm not talking about physical bathing. I'm talking about something deeper, something spiritual. What I'm going to do tomorrow on a cross, and what I'll prove through my resurrection a few days later, that 
is how you will be clean spiritually. And John got it. He got it. He went on to write, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And Jesus let the disciples in on something. Because they, the 11, left in this room at this point, because they had embraced the gospel through Jesus' teaching, Jesus was letting them know that they were regenerated. They had been made clean. So these are the characters involved, along with the clarification. We've got a, a vine in Jesus, a vine dresser, God the Father, and clean branches, the 11 disciples, and then all genuine believers to follow. What's Jesus instructing them to do? He calls them to abide in himself. Verse 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me. Remember, I'm the true vine. I'm the vine. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus asked his followers to abide in him, and then he talks about abiding over and over. Eleven times here in these short verses, 12 verses or so, he says, abide, 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 abide in me. I abide in you. Abide in me. I abide in you. He's saying in John's Greek, meno, over and over and over again. Abide, abide. That's the call. Abide in Jesus. And abide means to remain, to, to remain where you are, to stay in a fixed relationship, to endure. In this context, Jesus is calling his disciples into an unbroken not disconnected intimacy with him, a dependence on him, a life with Jesus. This term for abide, meno, it, the, the root of this word is what Jesus used when he was preparing a dwelling place. When he said, I, I'm creating many rooms for you, many mone, it's meno, it's the same root word. Literally, these many rooms for us in heaven, Jesus was talking about, like, grammatically speaking, what that means is it's a place, a physical place, to abide. So when he says abide, he's using the same word. He had just said, I'm going to make a way for you to dwell with God in heaven. I'm the way. He said, God is coming in the fullness of the Trinity to dwell in you. We're going to come to the believer and make our home in you. And then he said, you should dwell in Jesus, you should abide in me. This life of Jesus, life with Jesus is one of it's abiding. That, that's like one phrase that could sum up the whole experience of life in Christ. You've got a place to stay in heaven, and heaven is staying in you, and so you are staying in the king of heaven. It's all abiding. It's such an important concept, and we can't say everything about it. I'm looking forward to the release of our next few behind-the-scenes uh, vlogs from Bethel, Bethel Backstage. We're going to talk more about what's it mean to abide. How do we practically do that in daily life? Be looking for that. But just a few angles that we can see about what it means to abide. 
really from John himself in his epistle as he goes on to talk about this. He says in 1 John 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Believing in him, confessing him at the salvation moment where God has awoken faith and you've repented of your sins and you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. That's confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Abiding here, John is saying, begins by confessing Jesus. That's the beginning of abiding. In that sense, from this angle, abiding in Jesus is to receive and to trust all that God is for us in Christ. This is the beginning of abiding. It's to receive and then to trust all that God is for us in Christ, in Jesus. That's the beginning of what it means to abide in Jesus. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he abides in God. But from another angle, John writes too in the second chapter, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard in the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So how do you abide in Jesus? How do you abide in the Son and in the Father? By letting what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what's that? What have you heard from the beginning? It's the gospel. It's that Jesus is the one by whom we can have faith. We can be made alive in Jesus. That Jesus died in our place and for our sins. And when we repent of our sins and God awakes in us a faith to trust in Jesus, we're alive in him. We're made right before him. We're adopted into his family. That is the message they had heard from the beginning. So even down the road of our faith, we keep going back to the gospel. We receive and we trust him. We stay in that mode of applying the message and work of Jesus to us, even as people who have known Jesus perhaps for years and years and years. The message we heard from the beginning, we keep abiding in that. So in that sense, not only is abiding in Jesus to receive and trust all that God has for us in Christ, it's to keep receiving, to keep trusting all that God is for us in Christ. Just add the word keep into the last point. To abide in Jesus is to keep receiving, to continue trusting all that God is for us in Christ. That doesn't mean you keep getting saved. The first time God awakens faith in you and you respond to him, once and for all, we are in Christ. But we stay in that gospel-dependent relationship. John is calling believers to keep abiding in the salvation of Jesus as the way to abide in him. We keep depending on the finished work of Jesus for us. In that sense, to abide in Jesus... We abide in him because he is both the source of new life, the source of new life that we receive, and he's the source for new living that we keep trusting in. Jesus is the source of new life. He's the source for new living. He's both. He's the way that we're made alive in Christ. He's the way that we walk in Christ. He is both. That's why we abide in him and his work. 
He's the way to be saved and the way to live as an empowered, growing Christian. So we abide in that vine. We stay connected to that vine. And listen, maybe, maybe you and I are more alike than we're not. So maybe you and I can't grow things. I was given a beautiful little plant by little Allie Corbin. Not little, she's in birch. Okay, sorry, Allie. She gave me a little cute little plant to go in my office as a Christmas gift. It was so kind. It's dead already. It's a succulent. I didn't think they could die. Like, they just always perpetually exist. It's still in my office, though. So, it's a lovely dead plant. Maybe you and I are more alike in that sense. So, the whole plant thing, abiding in a vine thing, doesn't work so good for us. Maybe it's better to think about this abiding in Jesus like we think about power, the power grid, and electricity in our homes. You know that feeling when the lights suddenly go off? All of a sudden, the furnace powers down, and you check the temperature outside, and you go, I've got like two minutes till I die, which is an exaggeration. But, you know, the fridge is out, and there's food in the freezer, and you can't power anything, and you can't watch anything, and slowly and quickly, you descend into chaos, especially if your phone's beneath like 20%, right? What are we going to do without power? Why is there no power in our homes? Because somewhere between our home. And the electrical plant, there's a disconnection. There's a disconnection. In those moments, how thankful are we to the, the linesmen, the, the crew engineers who are reconnecting the power lines? John Clennenden, we love you. Thank you. Keep up that good work. What's necessary for our homes to have power? To abide in the power supply into our homes. To stay connected. The power plant provides the power. We just receive it. Connected to it, our house stays warm. Our phones stay charged. Our children stay distracted. Was that too honest? Disconnected, we can do nothing. In that sense, Jesus is the source for new life in Christ. But having been saved by grace through faith... As the source for new life, we don't begin to live and grow by a different means. No, we continue to be connected to him, to be in an unbroken, dependent intimacy with him, with the holiness he was for us and credits to us. Since that's true, I wonder, am I maximizing my connection to Jesus, the source for my new life and the source for my new living? Are we maximizing our connection to him. Like on a vine, we can all understand that spiritual lives fluctuate. There, there can be thriving or atrophy. There can be hydration or there can be dehydration. You, there can be growth or there can be stagnation. And in Christ, we have far more potential for fruit bearing, for receiving his power in life than any of us realize. Jesus is the source for new life and the source for new living. Nourished by new life, a Christian is connected to him as this power plant. Nourished for new living, though, we have to ask, how much energy are we drawing from that power plant? How much of his power and his direction and his control are we receiving? 
In the electric grid analogy, it was easy to tell back in the day how much power you were going through, right? You could step outside the meter and see the little thing spinning, 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 going quickly. You didn't necessarily know at the time what that meant in dollars and cents at all the time, but the faster it was spinning, the more you got nervous, right? And now we have an app for that, which is just depressing lately, right? You see that, and you know how much power you've been utilizing, How much life are we drawing from Jesus as our source for new life? Is the meter on our spiritual dependence on him spinning? Is it spinning quickly? Are our spiritual activities, perhaps like prayer, time in God's word, or service, giving the kingdom's work, are they duty to us? This thing that like, oh, I didn't do it today, but. Or or is it power supply? It's the way we continue abiding in him. If all we're experiencing is, well, I mean, you're here, so like, great. But like, if all we experience is like a week-to-week moment, is that abiding in the source for our new living? I think we need to understand who our source is. I don't have time to go there. I was reading in Isaiah 40 this week, kind of meditating on who God is. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Then we all love this part, right? Even youths grow weary. Young men fall exhausted, but those who wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like abiding and lingering with God He'll renew their strength. When we understand who God is, we can't know him, we can't weigh him, we can't begin to teach him anything. All of who we are are a drop in a bucket to him, whereas nothing less than nothing, to whom can we liken to God? When we know who our source is, it's like you go to the beach, Right up here at the state park and that, the national park, and you look down the coastline, and you see in Michigan City the big stack of the steam rising up from the nuclear power facility. And you think, man, that kind of ruins the, the beach view, but, but you know what's going on there, right? And if you had a house with a direct line hitched up to that, and all you could power was a little dim light bulb in your house, you would know that there's probably nothing wrong with the source. There's something wrong with my connection to it right now. How are we abiding? Are we maximizing the connection that we have through new life to the source for new living in God? And church, don't attach yourself to lesser things in the meantime then. Don't let that power source be transformed too many times down to a lower voltage to another person or a mentor or a leader or a pastor. Me, man, we can all be sources that redirect you to the source, but we cannot be your source for new life and new living. You have enough in Jesus. Let's abide in Jesus, the source for our life and new living. So we have characters, we have a clarification, we see this call to abide in him, but then there's some consequences, both positive and negative. We'll go negative first. The negative consequence of not abiding in Jesus is that 
false believers are broken off. We see that here in verse 2. I'm the vine, you are the... And my father is the vine dresser, Jesus had said, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, God the Father, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. We'll see more of this theme here next weekend, but Jesus is making it clear that it's possible to look like a branch but not be a branch. To look like a branch, but to be fruitless. To be a person who was around and with and near to Jesus, but in reality was not of Jesus. The reality is fruitless branches are dead branches no matter how connected they seem. Fruitless branches are dead branches no matter how connected they seem. There's no sap flowing into the branch. It's not connected to the vine. In my previous house, in our previous house, right about this time of year, late winter, early spring, we, we had a, a tree fall onto our house. I think there's a picture. Um, yeah, it's behind me. I'm in the way. So this tree fell on our house. And uh, we knew it was dead. In the summertime, we'd seen that there weren't leaves growing on it, on, on that section, that half of the tree. But then one day, one Sunday which is why you should always go to church on Sunday. This tree might fall on the house while you're there. That's not true. Uh, that was just a moral we, we took away ourselves. We, we come home from church, and I, I'm bringing a group of students to a mission trip meeting. I get a call from Ashton like, uh, <laughs> there's a tree in the way. So That's what student ministry is for. They came over to the house and helped me move the tree, and um, we moved along our way. You know that branch, that trunk line was connected, though we thought. The reality is, though, dead branches might appear connected, might even look like living branches, but in reality, they are already disconnected. They are ticking time bombs. So when Jesus says that the branches that don't bear fruit are taken away, what he's really saying is they're being shown for what they always really were in the first place. Dead branches, unalive, not a branch. In the context of this upper room, of course, the first example we can think of is Judas, someone who was near Jesus and walked with Jesus and other people assumed was a genuine disciple, but Jesus knew there was no spiritual life, no gospel faith in his heart, and that proved to be true in the end. He died a cursed man. And we see this theme repeated where Jesus talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares. That being in the field of God doesn't mean you are in the family of God. The parable of the sower. Some seeds may seem to sprout. Here in this moment that some branches might look like branches. And this is a sobering reality. A truth that causes us to reflect. How is my branch looking? What is my life producing? You may be here. We may sing the songs. We might take communion. Maybe we've even been baptized. There might be a thousand ways we can point to other branches and say, see, look, I'm a branch. But any dead branch can do some of those things. Jesus contrasts a dead branch with a true branch in order to make an invitation. Hey, abide in me. 
Trust in me. Repent of your sins. Stop trying to staple fruit and evidence onto a life that your branch can't support because there's no life in it to bear that fruit. All true believers, those who abide in Christ and he in him, will bear spiritual fruit. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Which brings us to the next consequence. In a positive direction. In verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So in that sense, genuine believers produce fruit. A consequence of abiding in Jesus is you do produce fruit. While the what and the how of fruit production isn't the main point here for Jesus, the reality of fruit in a believer's life is. What is fruit? Spiritual fruit, I think, might be labeled the experience and result of your life in Christ. The experience of life in Christ and the result of life in Christ. Through scripture, maybe quickly, we could see that we bear fruit when we win others to Christ, when we grow in holiness and obedience, when we give financially, when we demonstrate the characteristics of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, let's look at that in a second, when we do good works and service, Colossians tells us, when we praise God from a living heart. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians tells us, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are a fruit. It's all of those things. You can't pick one. That is the evidence of life growing in and through us from Christ. And that comes from abiding. Fruit bearing for the disciple then is totally dependent on a direct connection from Jesus. Jesus says, apart from me... You can do nothing. So, do you want to bear fruit in your life following Jesus? To look more like Jesus. If that's what you want, Jesus says, abide in me. Keep receiving, keep trusting what I've done for you. Dwell in me and my truth. You will produce fruit. In that sense, maybe, we shouldn't look for the product. We should look to the producer. We shouldn't look for the product. We should look to the producer. It can be easy. Sometimes I hear this like, hey, I'm trying to be more patient. I'm trying to be content in this scenario. I'm wanting and trying to forgive. And listen, in Christ, brother and sister, yes, we need to do those things. But maybe... The thing that's keeping those fruits from developing in your life is you need to stop trying to pin that fruit onto your life. And you need to instead start pinning your life into the gospel. Stay abiding in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what that new life means for you in Christ. And who he is and the magnificence and the wonder and the majesty and the glory of our God. We abide in him who will produce fruit, Jesus says. This is for free. I learned a new word this week in my reading. The word is fructify. Did you know that word? Did not know this word. Fructify. It means to make something fruitful, to make something productive. It's what Jesus does to us as we abide in him. He fructifies us. So, crucified with Christ, fructified in Christ. That's for my nerd friends out there. 
It makes us happy. There's one more consequence to abiding in Jesus, and that is that genuine believers are pruned. They produce fruit, and genuine believers are pruned. Verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And, this was cut in one branch, every branch that does bear fruit, genuine faith, genuine believer, genuine abiding in Christ, apart from Jesus, we couldn't do this, okay? Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. See, left to its own devices, a vine will grow, it'll grow, it'll grow, increasing in size, but decreasing in strength and, and in health until it's unable to hold the fruit it's ultimately intended to bear. The process of growing grapes hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. In Jesus' time, every vine that was planted as it was cultivated, it would be pruned back for the first three years of its life. It would grow, and before it could bear fruit, they would cut off the buds. And then it would grow another year, and they'd cut off the buds. And then it would grow another year, they'd cut off the buds. And finally, at that point, it was strong enough of a vine. It was looking thick. It was like a tree trunk up to the trellis it was around. And by that point, it was going to be strong enough to be able to sustain the fruit it had. And then every year after that, after it bore fruit, they would take the grapes, and once it went into dormancy, it would trim, they would prune back the plant all the way till on the new shoots there was just one or maybe two new buds. So you've got this tree that was constantly getting hacked back, hacked back, always pruned, so that the next year it would be strong enough and healthy enough, and the fruit it bore would be abundant. See, fruit grows through the work of the sun and the soil and the rain, but it also grows through the work of a pruning knife. And Jesus uses some wordplay here. In the next verse, remember he says that, he, that these disciples, they, they are already clean. They are already clean. And, and here he says the Father prunes. He prunes. Those are two different words in English, cleaning and pruning. Totally different words. But in in the Greek, John's writing here, he uses the same word in both places. The word is katharos, to make clean or also to remove, superfluous growth, to clean out, to clear out, to prune. So Jesus says, you've already been cleaned and the Father is cleaning. Jesus is the way we're made clean and God cooperates with the work of Jesus by cleaning out our lives. Jesus is the way we're made alive. As we abide in him and God the Father cooperates with the work of Jesus by causing us to grow into that life in the fullest sense. We grow in Christ through addition and subtraction. We grow through addition and subtraction. We're growing by Christ's life, coursing into us the gospel truth as we abide in him. And then by subtraction and the providences of a loving father who knows how to clean and to discipline and to prune so that we are very holy. That subtraction, that pruning, it does not feel good. The Father prunes true branches by removing anything that would sap their spiritual en energy, hinder them from fruitful results, cutting away anything that limits righteousness, through discipline and trials and suffering and persecution and also maybe through what we might think is just an unanswered prayer or a sorrow that we're stuck with. 
Hebrews 12 tells us that he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. In the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I couldn't say it better than Amy Carmichael, a missionary who years ago said, what a prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding from a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted vine dresser, there is not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it not have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. Seeing all those clippings and oozing stems from the ground and these hurts and these hardships and confusions and every correction and in each and every closed door, they might feel like a waste, but nothing has been cut away, which would not have been a loss for us to still have. Nothing is taken away, which for us isn't to our gain, our growth, and our fruit. Bethel family, let's know this as we think about the call to abide in Jesus. God is never closer to you in Christ than when he's pruning you. Sometimes he cuts away the dead wood that's causing trouble, the sin, the temptations. But often he cuts off living tissue that's robbing us. The good and the better he cuts away so that we might produce the best. And we can know that fruitful life. Because the fruitful life comes by abiding in Jesus, who has done everything for us to be connected and abiding in him. I'm thankful for that. Let's be a church who's in Christ for salvation and for life and godliness.